Hey, indie filmmakers, I'm Griffin Hammond. I'm Nick Bodmer, and on this week's episode, when Griffin's filmmaking equipment fails to arrive, he's forced to improvise and build his own. Plus, your questions about earning money with cheap filmmaking gear, putting Canon glass on mirrorless cameras, and the proper exposure for your productions. Hello, Nick. Hello, Griffin. How are you? I'm good. What'd you think of my intro just there that I read uh, to the camera? Did it sound okay? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Why? (laughs) I said, we said, all right, let's go. And I said, yep, I'm recording. And then you just went. And I realized I had not yet read my intro. So I did that live on the fly, (laughs) never having read it before. That was pretty good, I thought. Oh, it sounded great. Yeah, you, sometimes you stumble. Usually you need to try. But <laughs> maybe it's because tries. you put too much pressure on yourself. Uh, and this time you just didn't even have a chance to get nervous. <laughs> and, like, I actually felt the suspense. I was like, when Griffin's filmmaking, I was like, where is this going, this sentence? And then it failed to arrive. Oh, my goodness. What happened? Well, maybe Tell we, us. Maybe we should talk about what happened. Yeah. I. Yeah. I, so last week we talked about how I got my my drone certificate uh i think i was actually calling it a license and we got a youtube comment from visible tour who pointed out you are certified not licensed i think pilots hate this because there is no like dr- like remote pilot license yeah i think my well yeah let me look at my temporary certificate it's it's called the temporary airman certificate that i have right now until they mail me my official one gotcha okay so, yeah I'm a certified remote pilot. Anyway, now that I am that, I wanted to take my drone out for its first official FAA certified flight. And I've, I recently started flying with the iPad instead of the phone. Yeah. You mentioned that and, you make your wife act as a stand for you, basically. Right. So I, I wanted to stop making her hold it. <laughs> so... I was trying to figure out a way to mount the iPad to the to the Mavic remote. How would you do that? Okay. <laughs> do you have any ideas? And this is a full a iPad, not like an iPad mini that might barely be able to squeeze in those little grippers. Yeah, yeah, this is just too big I think to fit inside. Yeah, it can't it can't go inside the little grippers. I mean, I'm sure the Pedco Ultra clamp is involved, but I don't I can't think how. That was my original thought. Like, maybe I could just <laughs> clamp the clamp right onto the remote. I worried about breaking the remote, though, like clamping something onto yeah. it. It just seemed like a, not a great idea and probably not a very sturdy solution. So I went on Amazon, and there's this, like, $23 product, which I wouldn't even have thought of this. It's just kind of like a metal piece that goes in between those two grippers, like where your phone would go. And then it has, a like, an iPad stand sticking off of it hmm. so your ipad pretty much goes in front of your remote uh you might not even be able to see the remote very well but uh kind of hovering above it is the ipad but it didn't show up yeah i mean i was hoping i ordered this like tuesday i was hoping it would be here by saturday when i went to go upstate new york and fly around in the woods and it hadn't shown up and so i realized at this point, I probably could just build my own. Of course you can. And so I started looking around at all the gear that I had, just like stuff that I'm not using anymore. The first thing I found is 
I mean, it's it's funny. This is like a DIY project, but in the end, it probably cost. Like, if you were to go out and buy all these parts, it would probably cost two hundred dollars to make this twenty dollar thing I could have bought on Amazon. But you well, have the parts. Yeah, like you wouldn't buy these parts because they're too expensive. But uh, because I already had them around, one of them is is a cage for the GH four. Okay. And it's like a, you know, it's like a hundred dollar product, but someone gave it to me years ago. I don't use it anymore. And I realized I could just take the cage apart, all four sides, and I just took the bottom piece of the cage because it's a really lightweight piece of metal and it has holes in it and like quarter inch screws can go through it. So that's the piece okay. that I've, I, I'm putting between the two grips of the, the controller. Then I found, you know that that reflex shoulder rig mm -hmm. that I have, and I've I've already torn it apart because I'm currently using it. I'm using the rail system that it came with to be that retractable camera arm camera in my mount closet for the podcast, right? Yeah. So most of the shoulder rig is screwed into my shelf right now, and it's or my closet. And it's holding my camera in place. It's filming me right now, uh, but the handles for this thing were still available. And so I took the little, I don't know, there's like a little metal bar that's two inches long and I pulled that off the handle. And so now that is sticking off of the cage piece. And then on top of that is, I actually already have a iPad clamp kind of made for filmmaking. It has like a quarter inch, uh, it's, a, it's a Joby uh, device that clamps okay. around the iPad and then has a quarter inch screw hole so you can mount your iPad to a tripod or something like that. Um, and I, I actually use it more for a monitor than an iPad. I use it like when I was doing a slider move, I'll mount a monitor to the slider so that it's you don't have to like follow the moving camera with your eyes. Gotcha. So now I have this lightweight little thing that's <laughs> the... It's the sum of three different pieces, and I've put a little lanyard on it, actually like a red digital cinema lanyard. I don't know where I got this. Um, so now I can wear the whole thing around my neck so I don't drop my iPad and my remote. But uh, it does the job. Nice. Do we have a photo uh, or something of this device, or maybe you're holding yeah, it right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm showing it right now, yeah. Um, and you can imagine. I, I can everyone gets to see it but me, basically, because... <laughs> just an audio call it's very confusing but it, wor it worked perfectly um good i mean i suppose i would recommend just buying the 20 dollar one i don't know why uh i don't think it was amazon's fault i think the u.s postal service failed to deliver it they lost it somewhere unacceptable did you get any cool drone footage while you were down there yeah i mean this was you know, this was nice because it's it's completely uncontrolled airspace. Uh, there's really nothing around, so I don't have to worry about, you know. You consulted all the appropriate charts. Yeah, I, and I checked out the weather and everything. I'm actually using an app that's pretty cool uh, called Kitty Hawk. Like I think where I, uh, the Wright brothers yeah. did their first flight. Is that right? Did I make that yeah. up? Yeah, that's where, yeah. why they named it that way. Yeah, it, yes. I failed to talk about this last week. History. Um it's kind of only useful for people who have passed the part 107 certification that we talked about last week because it it's really designed for someone who has all those author or you know has those privileges um and it shows you airspace 
and it shows you weather conditions. Um, I also really like that you can create checklists. And so that's been really helpful. Like I have a pre-arrival checklist and a pre-flight checklist to make sure one, am I bringing everything? Have I checked all the appropriate charts and weather? Um, am I turning everything on correctly? Did I remember to turn up the brightness on the iPad before I started flying? All that kind of stuff. And uh, so yeah, I like that app a lot. It's It only costs like $20 for the whole year. Nice. But then another app is that it... I'm playing with right now is called Drone Deploy. Okay. And this was an app that my friend Matt Edwards told me about, and that's it's why I got curious about it. Because I think he was using it. It's like an it does automated flights of your drone, <laughs> which okay I was nervous about. But the idea is that like it, it sends flies your... it for you. Yeah, like it's it's really designed for like has a lot of like construction and farming applications the idea okay. is that you you look at a map on drone deploy and you can draw an area that you want to capture in high resolution and you could set some things like how much overlap do you want in the photos and all this stuff and how much resolution do you need and then it just draws a flight plan for you it says okay well if this is the area you want me to cover I'll send up the drone, I'll fly back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, collect all the photos I need, and then stitch them together, and you'll get your high-resolution imagery. And, But it, it does all the flying for you, uh, which I had to get comfortable with. But playing with it out in the woods where I had lots of room and lots of property that belonged to my friend, and I know I'm not in any weird airspace, uh, I felt like I could finally try this thing out. So... I told it that I, I wanted to, to survey his land. I drew the map and it said, oh, this will take six minutes and I'll take a hundred photos. And I sent it up and it did its thing. It just went back and forth. Can I, can I, all right, I got a, I've got a million questions. I got to start right yeah. at the beginning though. Yeah. How, like, so how does drone deploy control the drone? So it's an app on the iPad or on the phone. And yeah, that, that's one thing I'm not entirely sure about. I don't know, is it... Is it live telling the remote what to do, or is it somehow through the remote giving a flight plan to the drone? Like, I don't understand, uh, you know, if I lose connection, will the drone stop receiving Keep information? Yeah, I don't know. Um, all I know like, is that... So in, could I do this with my Spark somehow, or is this a feature of the higher-end drones? I think you probably could do it with a Spark. I know that it seems like when I'm using the app, it's tailored towards something like the Mavic Pro or the Phantom 4 Pro or something. Because it even said something in there like, maximum speed, 34 miles per hour. And I, I thought, like, I'm not sure the Mavic Air can even go that fast. And so I just I dropped the maximum speed down to 15 because I was like, I think that's the top speed of this thing. I could be wrong. But it just felt like it's crazy. Some of the features uh, felt a little weird for the Mavic Air. Yeah, it's it's not free software. It's well, it's it's free to to try it. So I'm still in my trial plan. I think it costs like eighty three dollars a month at the cheapest. So it's expensive. But I think the idea is like if you were a farmer, you could send this thing up every week, do an automated flight. You'd have a whole picture of all your crops, and it could even do some like plant health information for you like it can do a lot of really smart analytics about what it's looking at 
So you have the map that I I created, right? Yeah, I've got it pulled up, and it, it just kind of looks like a Google Maps thing. So you're looking at the 2D map right now? Yep. So yeah, I it took like 100 photos, stitched them all together, and this is my friend's property. And then what's crazy is because it also took so many pictures and from different angles, it's also able to generate a 3D model of what it just pictured. So if you click on the 3D model... Do you see that? Does it take a while to load? Oh, it may take a second to load, yeah. Because it just basically, the 2D, the good part of the 2D went away, and now I'm just looking at not cool looking. Yeah, there is a lot of information, so it may take a moment to load it. Uh, okay. Once it loads, you can drag it around. You can also like hold control and drag to like tilt it and change it and everything. Uh, but it's pretty crazy that like I just sent the drone up for five minutes and it came back with a full 3D map of my friend's house and his like wooded backyard. Like all the trees are pretty nicely rendered. It's almost like it created yeah. a video game level. What um, browser are you using? I'm in Chrome on Windows. I wonder if I need to do this on my Mac or something. I'm in Safari on Mac. I did find that right. I was having trouble. Let me up on my Mac. I was having trouble in Firefox on Mac. It wasn't able to do the like 3D tilting. Uno momento. I'll also I'll put like a screen capture in the uh, in the podcast so people can see this. Yeah, I didn't realize how many apps there are that can control the the drone other than DJI. Like I have you know, Kitty Hawk, the app that I really like for pre-flight stuff, it can also fly the drone. It pretty much has its own interface that looks almost identical to the DJI interface. Uh, so you can fly it in there. I can fly it in the DJI app. I could fly it in the the drone deploy app. I guess they make their API pretty accessible. That's cool. Well, I can't get the 3D thing to load right now on either one. Okay. So. Um, but I did pull up their website. It looks like it will not work with the Spark. It looks like it's the Phantom, the Inspire, the Matrice, and the Mavic. Does it say just Mavic, or does it say Mavic Pro or Mavic Air? DJI, Mavic, and it only lists Mavic Pro, but maybe the Air is just too new and they don't have it on their website. Yeah. Well, that's why I kind of wonder if the Spark would work anyway, because I kind of feel like Drone Deploy didn't tell me anything that implied that it understood which drone it was flying. Like, does it know the? Di- I don't know if it knows the difference between a Mavic Air and a Mavic Pro. Would it know that you're flying a Spark and not a Mavic? Aha! Uh-huh. It says I, I, the Spark is not supported um, hmm. because it does not support waypoint flight modes, which must be how Drone Deploy oh. flies it. It basically, you know, creates waypoints for for the drone to go execute on. I see. Which is kind of cool. So yeah, that makes me think maybe the maybe drone deploy is uploading a flight plan to the drone and the drone is executing it on its own without needing constant input from the from the RC remote. It's very neat, but I can't yeah. play with it, which makes me sad. <laughs> well, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I'm coming to Vegas so I can show it to you. Woohoo!
And will you require uh, pre-authorization from the FAA to fly in my uh, my yard and do this? Yes, uh, but one thing I'm interested in trying is this system that I think we've talked about it months ago on the podcast that I didn't even fully understand at the time, and now I get it a lot better. There's the system the FAA has launched or is in the process of rolling out across the country called Lance. Do you remember mm-hmm. this? I do. And at the time, I understood it as like, oh, it's a way to digitally uh, ask for authorization from the FAA and you can get near real-time uh, approval. And I thought it was like, oh, well, you know, maybe they look at some criteria like, oh, you're a safe pilot and we trust you and oh, you're allowed to do it under a certain height or something. I didn't realize it's it's pretty much entirely automated and it's really just asking one question. It's like, like do you want to fly below this height? Like they've kind of mapped out around airports and just said, oh, even though this whole area is class B airspace, like it is around Las Vegas, uh, we know that planes are generally moving up away from the airport. So there are areas outside in that class B airspace that actually have a ceiling that's higher than zero. Like over here, it's a ceiling of a hundred feet over here. It's a ceiling of 200 feet or 300 feet. So pretty Mm -hmm. much, if you want to apply to fly under 100 feet in the 100-foot ceiling area, you'll just get instantly approved because that's what's allowed there. Now, so, if you needed to do something higher than that, could you request more, and then they will actually like adjust flight patterns around what you're doing for a period of time? I don't think they're something? gonna they're not gonna adjust flight pa- patterns around you, but you can do the traditional what's called manual authorization. Where I mean, I could request to fly in the zero-foot ceiling area, and I may get approved, but my understanding is it could take as much as three months. I don't know if they prioritize oh, wow. stuff. You know, if I say I want to fly tomorrow, maybe they put me closer to the top of the list. But yeah. but that's what's cool about Lance is knowing that, like, your house is in a 200-foot ceiling zone. So I think I should be able to get instant approval. Sweet. Yeah. I hey, wanted to talk real quick about MacBook Pros. We talked about that. It's been a while now because we had an episode about it, and we talked about the new MacBook Pros, and we said, wow, they sound really cool. And in the next episode, there were all these problems coming out about thermal throttling, and they aren't even as fast as the year before because they just get really slow because they get so hot. And what's yeah, going on? We even on? talked about someone putting their MacBook in a freezer and render times improved. Improved, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then we had our week off, and uh, then the week after that, I think I forgot about it. So anyway, wanted to follow up. Um, yeah. It was a bug in the thermal firmware. So Apple did confirm things were not acting the way they were supposed to, and the performance hmm. was not what was expected. But they quickly issued a software update, and that seems to have completely eliminated the issue. So everyone is oh, now cool. getting um, the performance they expect out of the new MacBook Pros. So they, once again, have my full-throated endorsement. Although it's funny because I just saw another news story this week about apparently Apple MacBook Pro users are reporting a crackling sound (laughs) coming from the computer that's not coming from the speakers. That's news. I haven't heard that one yet. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't know. (laughs) There may be other issues too. Uh, But that's cool that they were at least able to fix the heat issue with firmware or with software good speaking of you want to answer some uh, questions 
Yeah, we have some follow-ups to previous episodes uh, to start off our questions this week. One is an email that I got from Jerry, who last week we had a question about selecting multiple ranges in Final Cut. Like, yep. my thinking was you can't select more than one in an out point, but we talked about some some workarounds, some other ways that you can select things, like doing keywords or favorites, like you suggested. But Jerry actually says you can select multiple in and out points. If you hold down Command and Shift while you do I and O for in and out in the event viewer, it will let you select multiple ranges in a single clip. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so you could select so multiple ranges. We all something about this. Then hit like E, which appends your selection to the end of the timeline. You could hit E and they'd all show up there. Or as he points out, you could do Shift Command set your in and out points and then you could hit f like you said to do favorite but you and can actually set mark all of those ranges once. as a favorite yeah. yeah that's cool more speed boosting tips yeah and then we also had a youtube comment from chadzilla333 who says wait griffin and nick both have their ham radio license yes we do very nerdy <laughs> i know have so we, we even, did we got them I, I haven't touched mine in a long time, but we had them in yeah, high school, right? And uh, we both had radios in our cars. You know, we're 16 years old. You drove a sweet green Ford Explorer. Yeah. I had that little black car, and we would uh, we would chat on the radio on the way to school in the morning. Yeah, this was... Uh, it wasn't... Maybe... I feel like it was pre-cell phones, but not really. I think cell phones were coming out, but just, like, not anyone had them yet. Uh, right. Like we worked at Radio Shack and I maybe had a phone, but I don't think we were making a lot of calls. I did back get then. my first cell phone in high school, but at the very end. And yeah. yeah. So like ham radio. So yeah. Just... That was our best way to communicate with each other. <laughs> <laughs> we were pretty cool. Yeah. Let's see. You, your, uh, your call sign is KB9ZSC. And you are KB9ZUL, as I recall. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I pulled out my little, I have a little, that little Yezu handheld ham radio. Uh, I pulled it out last week because one of the recommendations from the FAA is when you're flying near controlled airspace or near anywhere where there's uh, flight paths, you should listen into frequencies to like control tower frequencies or, or airplane reporting frequencies so you can listen to the air traffic and so i pulled out my my ham radio because i can dial it into those those frequencies and it worked i was listening to like jfk's control tower which yesu do you have uh i don't remember the the model i'm sure it's probably something your dad recommended because your dad i wonder i I was gonna say i just i just went and found mine i knew i had it in a drawer somewhere a little radio. I, w- I wonder if I can listen to the to the pilots. How do I do that? Yeah. You'll Although I bet this is also like on the internet. Like I bet you can. I think you can listen to control <laughs> towers <laughs> digitally as well. Oh, that's funny. All right, let's answer some some filmmaking questions. You want to read this one from Austin? I would love to. I would love to. Austin emails. I'm working on a political ad again, but this time they want way more B-roll. I can get things off. Uh, stock websites i'm assuming he means not stick websites yeah. uh but they want to use newspaper headlines and articles what 
what's the laws about using video of real newspaper in your shots, especially if they are the main subject, and what would be the situation of a screenshot of an online article as well? Would it be easier and safer to just fabricate my own news headlines? That's a good question, Austin. Uh, and it's off, it taps into... Off the bat, I just want to say, it, fabricating headlines for a political ad sounds not good. Just from right. an ethics perspective. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be careful in the way you're doing it. Although, you know, I think if you were to fabricate a headline that mimicked what people recognize is actually happening in the news, um, you know, if if you were to say, like, uh, U.S. investigates Russia interference in elections, like, people get, like, okay, that happened. Uh, You know, I know there are news articles about that. But, yeah, you're right. I wouldn't fabricate... (laughs) headlines that that go off in a Political direction that your audience wouldn't recognize is a murderer um, right don't do that uh but we we've talked about fair use on the podcast before and fair use is the idea that there is always a fair reason to infringe on someone else's copyright you do have the right to take other people's copyrighted work and use it under certain circumstances and i think there's definitely a protected one here that you may that may you may have a strong argument for using. Uh, you know, if your political ad is making the point, this issue that's facing our state has been in the news a lot, and then you show some some headlines that prove that you're using those. It's like you're citing them to support your argument the same way you would in like a, a paper for college, uh, or if you're writing a news story. And so you can definitely get away with doing that. I do that all the time in news videos that I do for for clients. Uh, I think we I made a video where we were talking about Robert Mueller, and we showed a bunch of headlines about like what people had written about Robert Mueller. Uh, although I, I certainly feel more protected doing that in a journalism capacity. I think no one is going to attack me when I'm working for a news agency and we're referencing other news stories like that, I think it is a little bit more dangerous if you're making political ads because now someone, you know, a journalist probably doesn't want to feel like they're being exploited to promote a particular candidate. So I think if you're going to do that, you have to be careful, like, are you showing it really truthfully and fairly? And if you feel like those people might get mad, maybe that is where you want to make some proxy headlines. Does that sound like good and advice, Nick? just to confirm, we are not lawyers. Yeah, again, we're not lawyers. <laughs> and, and like always, fair use is a defense. It's an argument you can make, but it's not a foolproof... I mean, people could still sue you. Then you'd have to go to court and make your fair use defense, and maybe the judge agrees with you. But my advice to Austin would be, go back to your client and say, yes, I think we do have a fair use argument to do this, but... Do you have your own legal counsel you'd like to run this past? Uh, do you Is this a level of risk you're willing to take on? I mean, I, I think we're good, but do you want to risk it? Uh, and if not, let's figure out another way to do it. Here's a Twitter message that we got from Noah, uh, who says he's a big fan of the podcast, and he's looking into shooting wedding and event videos and wondering if there's any way to get around having not-so-expensive equipment. He doesn't want to look unprofessional, but right now he just doesn't have the money to buy expensive gear. So 
what should he do? Should he start getting into this business? I think so. I mean, we got started with really low-end equipment, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. The Sony TRV 120 camcorder. Is <laughs> we each we had one shooting that weddings. we shared. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's some, some basics that you need for wedding and event videography. Like, we had two cameras and we had two tripods. And I think when we started, we didn't even have good audio gear. We just put, like, a shotgun mic on one of the cameras, which... And it was, like, the Sony shotgun mic that they sold to go with these handy cams, so I think it was pretty terrible, too. Yeah. So, I mean, those cameras were bad because they were not good in low light. They had a small CCD sensor. Uh, you know, they looked terrible during the receptions. They looked okay during the, the ceremonies, but they definitely weren't giving us, like, beautiful cinematic footage it was we were dark just there to grainy it. footage yeah <laughs> and people but, still liked it i mean what you're also bringing is your skill set like the fact that we know to set up the cameras on tripods because they're going to look a lot cleaner and easier to edit and just the fact that we are editing between these two cameras i mean they've hired us to capture this moment in a way that someone couldn't on a phone holding it handheld so it's the editing and the coverage that you bring, and I think you can you can definitely do it with. I mean, I think if you set up two iPhones correctly at a wedding, you could. I mean, you're right. You may not look very professional, but I think you could make a professional product that people wouldn't question. Yep. Yep. I totally agree. Yeah. So yeah, and I then, say get started with what you got. Yeah, that's how we've all done it. Make some money and then buy some more gear when you realize which gear you're going to need to up your game. And the big thing is setting expectations, right? You don't want someone to expect that you're coming in with gimbals and drones and sliders and, you know, you don't want to be showing them footage that isn't going to match what they're going to get. But as long as they know the kind of product they're going to get, then I don't see any issue. Yeah. And I think there's plenty of wedding clients who their first priority is getting a good photographer and their second priority is like, maybe I want video. I don't know if I want to pay for it or not. And, mm -hmm. you know, so if you can find a client that isn't looking for the highest quality, but they just know that they want it on camera because they want to be able to watch it later. They want to see important. the speeches later. They want to watch the vows later. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Capturing memories. Yep. We got a YouTube comment from Elvind who is asking about the GH4 and other mirrorless cameras. So he's using a GH4 with micro four thirds lenses, but also likes to use Canon glass and he's attaching that with a speed booster so he's wondering what we think is the best solution he's wondering if we've tested out speed boosters and larger lenses uh and he also mentions the sigma 18 to 35 millimeter art lens which is a very popular lens you've never used a speed booster have you i haven't though i mean if i wanted one my and I don't know why, maybe it's marketing, but I'd go straight to the Metabone Speed Booster. They kind of made the market in my mind, so I assume they're the best one out there, but maybe that's not accurate. What do you think? Yeah, that's how, kind of how I feel, too. I don't I don't even know what's available. I do know a lot of people are, in the years since the Speed Booster came out, have made their own, uh, but the Metabones is still the only one I've ever used. I agree with Elvind. He mentioned the weight and the size. Like, I've... I have used a speed booster. I, I used to shoot with a Tokina 11 to 16 millimeter lens on my GH4 with a speed booster. And I liked that lens, but it was a pretty big 
lens system on this camera. And now I have the Panasonic has an 8 to 18, which accomplishes the same thing and it's like half the size. So I do like that you can get small Panasonic lenses that don't take up a lot of room in your bag. Um, but I think we've said it before, if you have Canon glass already, you should definitely go get an adapter and keep using that that glass unless you want to sell it all. Right. And I know that Sigma 8 to 35, 18 to 35 millimeter is a very popular lens. Um, and do the new newest speed boosters give you some level of electronic control of the lens, or is it, do you still shoot everything all manual? I think they must. Uh, I I haven't used them recently to know though, um, but that's definitely something to figure out or to consider uh, when you when you buy an adapter and a lens. Is it going to give you electronic control, or is this going to be a fully manual lens now, or will the camera let you focus and set aperture inside the 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 camera i mean i remember one thing when i was back when i would buy adapters for strange lenses that i had uh, <laughs> some lenses need an adapter that has its own aperture ring because you need a way to control the aperture and if it doesn't have electronic control in the camera then the adapter itself may need to have a ring if the uh, the lens doesn't have its own right we got a youtube comment from Coltha Hire? Hopefully I'm saying that right. I'm probably not. Hey, Griffin and Nick. I recently attended an industry event here in Australia called the Screen Makers Conference. There were speakers from the industry in Australia and internationally ranging from TV networks, content creators, and distributors. One of the common things said was that one-off documentaries don't sell and that people should make series. After speaking with people, I came to the conclusion that broadcasters would rather fill a few time slots rather than just one. I think it's a shame because there are many great one-offs, Sriracha being an example. Would you say that one-off docs do better on online platforms such as YouTube, Netflix, or other streaming services? Did you attempt to get Sriracha to broadcast, and would you look at that possibility in the future? Well, thank you. I'm glad that you like Sriracha. Um, you're right that, I mean you do kind of see the future of of streaming as developing a series i mean there's a lot more interest especially from netflix they want people to subscribe to netflix keep paying for it every month and they want to give you content that keeps you showing up week after week uh, so i think it probably is a lot easier to sell a series i mean it's a lot more work to make a series uh, but a lot of a lot of the documentary stuff i hear people talking about ideas that they have are not about making I mean, making a 33-minute film like I did is a really strange uh, length. I think a lot of times when I'm talking to people, they are talking about like, well, let's make a 30-minute episode, but let's make 10 of them, and then you could sell that to a network, especially if you're going to go to all the work of talking to a network to get something on their air. You, you, know, you might as well give them more if you can. I think the hard thing is I, I was asked about doing some broadcasting with Sriracha, but traditional broadcasters outside of online they wanted to fit into a time slot and so i think i was asked to edit sriracha down from 33 minutes down to 22 which is the standard 30 minute length when you're running ads on it and i just didn't want to lose 11 minutes and i don't even know if i want to lose three minutes like if we were going to fit this on hbo or something in a half an hour time slot right. with no commercials I, I probably could cut out four minutes but i just i, I don't know i wasn't particularly interested in making you know doing more work to to get it on broadcast when that was yeah, like you know maybe a one-time deal minutes out how 
just first blush, how would you cut 11 minutes out of that film? Can you even think of what you would do? I mean, there's, I'd, I'd probably cut all of the Illinois state footage from our college. Um, yeah, that's kind like of like around thinking first. The whole Lay's chip storyline could probably yeah. go, right? Yeah, it was unnecessary. There's, that's not 11 minutes. That's probably four or five. Right? right, yeah. I really love the first 15 minutes of the film. Every time I have to go watch the film again at a, at a film festival, I think like, wow, I, I really like this film. It moves really fast. And it gets to the 15 minute marker is right when like the guy is chugging sriracha and it's really disgusting and it always gets a really big audience reaction. And so I yep. love that moment. And then right after that moment, it calms down. It goes to our college. Uh, yeah, it's it's a storyline that's not that important. And I probably have it in the film because it was the first thing I shot. And I'm kind of I was kind of in love with it. I mean, you know, in a way, it's like I was almost nostalgic for this footage because it was the first part of my production. Um, but yeah, I probably could drop those four minutes. I think after that is some chef talk, which is also not that interesting but you do learn a lot. Like, I think it's important like, to learn that like sriracha is in like, spicy tuna. Yeah, yeah, but I there's like probably a way stuff. for me to get straight to Jet Tila saying, like, you have to go to Thailand. Like, we could probably go yeah. almost straight from chugging sriracha to Thailand. But even then, I, I may only lose, like, six minutes. I don't know. There's there's even it more. It would be really to tough to cut 11 minutes out of that film. And it I think I was faced film. with something like, I think, I don't even remember who it was, but I think a broadcaster was like, hey, you know, we'll give you, like, I think they were offering like a thousand or two thousand or something to like run it on TV, but I'd have to cut eleven minutes. It was kind of like, all right, so I'm gonna have to do like hours and hours and hours of editing to get this thing down, and I'm not even sure you're offering me enough to warrant that. And I'd be, you know, you know, sacrificing my vision for this film, that kind of thing. So it just it wasn't worth it in the end. Interesting. But it is still on Amazon Prime, right? Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. And uh, to answer the rest of, of Kultha's question, I haven't really pursued broadcasters or, you know, I haven't even figured out how to get it on Netflix or anything. Uh, so I've just been kind of happy with the self-distribution I've done. Our final question today is an email from Ben, who is shooting and editing uh and then watching things on an apple device and okay. he's thinking that because he has the screen brightness turned down like he's, he's noticing in the editing it looks normal and then when he watches it on his phone his screen brightness is down and it just looks really dark and he's wondering if there's some sort of standard exposure that he should be editing with to make sure that it's going to be good across all devices he's editing with premiere I don't know. Is there a, a standard like brightness level you aim for, like you do with an audio level? Like, can well, you it's look funny because a... when I first read this question, I was kind of stumped. I was thinking, like, no, I I don't know. There probably is. Uh, there's probably someone much smarter than me about doing color uh, that knows the IRE levels. That uh, I don't know. I don't know about all that stuff. Uh, there probably is a, a good answer, but I realized I can at least say I would pull up the the waveform monitor in your editing software. Because mm -hmm. I'll do that a lot. And that is a way to test what you're seeing. You know, your, your screen brightness can be turned way up or really dark on your computer when you're editing. But if you pull up the waveform monitor in Final Cut, that's as easy as just doing Command-7 to pull that up. I, I don't know what it is in Premiere. 
but then you can see a chart of the exposure that you're looking at and it, it's kind of you know some of it is personal preference on where you want these things to be set but you can see the shadows in your shot are hovering somewhere above zero and if you want you can pull them all the way down to zero to have like really rich blacks in the shot mm-hmm. uh, if you go below zero now you're clipping you're losing details uh, if you want to hover a little bit above zero it'll give you kind of this like uh, i don't know how to describe it it's kind of the popular look right now like okay, less kind contrast. of washed out low low contrast yeah a little look, bit yeah. washed out yeah so if you if you bring your highlights i mean you could bring your highlights all the way up to 100 or you could have them hover a little bit below that and if you have your blacks hover a little bit above zero you get kind of this cool washed out look um but i'm guessing if your footage is really dark it's probably all just the whole waveform is sitting down around like 30 and especially if your highlights are sitting down at 50 or something it's like okay this whole shot is really on the darker side it's all like in the lower half of the exposure and some shots should be dark if that's what they're you're going for but i think you could just look take a look at your whole video and if the whole thing is below 70 you could just rise the whole thing up by 30 to get it into a, and I a better have, zone the only other thing i wonder is maybe his screen brightness on his phone really is just too low <laughs> like maybe maybe turn up the screen brightness a bit yeah i mean mostly yeah I what i'm concerned s- about with when i'm looking at the waveform is i'm i'm not too concerned about overall brightness or darkness i'm really concerned about Am, am I making the most, am I getting the most contrast if I want contrast out of the shot? Do I have room to move it up and down? And am I doing it without losing details? I mean, the, the thing I want to make sure I'm doing is not pushing it so far that I'm clipping the brights and the darks. Uh, I think as long as you're not clipping and you're you're maxing out your, your contrast, uh, then it should look good on all devices. I find I always struggle with this part of coloring and video editing it's just really not my strong suit and i never really know how bright i should be pushing shots and things like that yeah. so um something i could always work on i've Stuff. definitely made the mistake i mean i think i've talked about this even on a very early podcast i think like one of our first episodes is about all the mistakes that we've made and i definitely have made the mistake of maybe i'm editing on monitors that have higher contrast themselves than mm-hmm. other people's monitors so when i'm editing I may have two things matted next to each other, feathered together, that I think are both pure black. Like, to my eye, they both look like they're at a zero black level. And so, you know, you put a black thing on another black thing when you're editing, and it's it's going to look the same. It should look the same. Uh, and then when I watch it on someone else's device, it has, like, a higher con- or less contrast. It's brighter. And I can see the line between what turns out to be true black and then next to it is like a shade of gray that's just really dark. Yeah. Um, so that's one place where if I relied on the waveform more, I would see that. Because in the waveform, I'd see 0, 0, 0, 0, and then boom, it bumps up to 20. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, there's two different colors. There's something there. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So good luck, Ben. It's tough. Yeah. I don't know. We probably made it sound more complicated than it is. I think if you think it looks dark, make it brighter. Make it brighter. <laughs> and it is always nice to see your work on on multiple screens, hear it through multiple speakers. I mean, that's for a long time that that's been my workflow. Yeah, it is kind of fun to watch something on a phone and hear it differently and see it differently and realize, oh, 
if most of my audience is going to be watching this on a phone, I may need to fix the audio mix a little bit because you can't distinguish these two things very well. When you really want to get like the phone experience to kind of test something out, do you just use your tiny TV? Is that kind of what you you go with? <laughs> Actually, the biggest challenge with my TV is that it has. Uh, I don't know. I, I probably could change these settings, but it's like the overscan settings where it's, it crops you know, in. Basically, yeah, I'm not seeing to the full edge of the shot. TV's cropping it a little bit, so you know oh, if you. God. If you have a graphic Cruise that's not in the title so safe cheap zone. Now. Go get one of these 65-inch TCL. I don't need Roku another TV. <laughs> you do. That's the problem. You do. <sighs> Anywho, we did it. We're done. Yeah. Good episode. That's it for this week. Griffin. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for hanging with us yet again. Yeah. We'll catch you again next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. I had all kinds of problems during this episode. I don't know if you could tell that I was having headset. My my AirPod died on me at one point. I had to go switch it out, and then it connected to my phone and not to the laptop. There was a good thirty seconds where I hadn't, I couldn't hear you. <laughs> I'm always I got it back right as you like finished a statement. And I went okay. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>